Hello, and welcome to the Stockout. I'm Mike Bowden, just still on the head of Intermodal Solutions at FreightWaves. Hope everyone is doing well, and I hope it's nicer where you are than it is in Dallas right now, where it's a very uh, gloomy and uh, rainy day. I have an extra light to show my face because uh, it's actually so dark here in the middle of the day. Um, but uh, today, uh, the Stockout um, is the show that we uh, have at FreightWaves set aside 26 minutes to go through everything that's happening in the world of consumer packaged goods, CPG. There's, we follow the CPG industry because a lot of the companies that um, come to us at FreightWaves um, are either in that industry or are carriers or brokers you know, serving that industry. The CPG industry makes up about one-fifth of all freight transportation. It's the stuff we buy every every day. Uh, every week that we bring through our, our front door. So I think it's things that people can uh, relate to. And so uh, this show, I'll kind of split it up into two parts, talk about the CPG news, and then I'll go through some transportation highlights, uh, which sort of serves as kind of an industry uh, update. But before I do that, I'd like to thank uh, the sponsor for today's show, which is RJW Logistics Group. RJW owns and operates every step of the middle mile. As an asset-based integrated logistics company, they offer a full suite of retail supply chain solutions under one roof, including industry-leading retail consolidation that consistently delivers over 98% on time and in full month after month to many retailers. RJW's programs offer global suppliers control and transparency, helping them improve in-stocks, achieve retailer compliance, grow market share, and increase sales. Visit rjw.com to optimize your supply chain today. So a big thanks to RJW Logistics Group and I'm going to have them on the show next week. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the market from their perspective, uh, you know, how they can improve the efficiency of, uh, you know, CPG uh, supply chain. So looking forward to that conversation. Hope you can join me for that uh, next Monday. Um, With that, uh, let's go ahead into the first topic here, which inventories remain bloated in most uh, sectors. And we have a graphic um, that the retail, um, not the retailer, the research group at FreightWaves put together. And you can see all of these, you know, companies that report their their inventory, their, the research team sort of went through all these, um, you know, public filings to, to get at this. And you remember about a quarter ago was the quarter when, uh, you know, Walmart and Target talked about their supply, um, their inventories being up 35% or 45% above year ago levels. And a couple of things uh, really stand out to me about this graphic is that whole list of companies, they're all up, uh, you know, year over year. And the companies that had already sort of sounded the alarm in the previous quarter about how their inventories were too high, you know, those being Target and Walmart, Target's inventories are still up 2% quarter over quarter. So since the, since the prior quarter and Walmart's only down 2%. Quarter over quarter, Walmart did say they got rid of a lot of the seasonal merchandise, and Target had talked about how they've had huge programs in place to get rid of the uh, you know excess inventory. Sort of took it as kind of a rip the bandaid off approach to get rid of a lot of the excess inventories. Kind of amazing then that it was still um, still up quarter over quarter for Target by two percent, and still up thirty six percent year over year despite taking all of those actions. Walmart up you know inventory up twenty five percent despite clearing out a lot of that summer merchandise. And so it just sort of speaks to how um, you know, much time it takes for some of that inventory correction to take place. And across that list of companies, which included not just those big retailers, but a lot of CPG companies, um, you know, that whole list had inventories that were well above, you know, year ago levels, sort of well above quarter, you know, the previous quarter levels. And that's sort of a little bit of a departure, even from the previous quarter, 
where the previous quarter um, often had to sort of interject when people talked about inventories, when they said, well, inventories are really high. And I had kind of had to interject and say, well, really, that's for general merchandise. It's for things like what they call hard lines, you know, things like furniture, toys, electronics. Um, but consumables really go back, you know, a quarter ago or, or so, you know, things that you eat, sort of um, food products, per- beverages, personal care products really hadn't seen that increase in inventories. We are seeing that now there's been a pretty significant change in, um, in behavior among consumers just in the past quarter, seeing that in results of some companies like you know, Tyson Foods, and I'll talk about that um, you know, a little bit later, seeing more companies move to private label um, you know, brands, you're seeing more uh, consumers do their grocery shopping at the big box retailers like a, like a Walmart instead of traditional you know, grocers. It was interesting that Walmart said that most of the share they gained among grocery shoppers were, you know, were you know, shoppers that make over $100,000 a year doing more of their grocery shopping at Walmart. So it's, it's really um, you know, the concern about inflation, trying to save money right now, sort of cutting across different um, you know, income uh, you know, brackets. Also have a, a chart on here from the Logistics Managers Index on the warehousing prices. So this is, is interesting because for a couple of reasons, still shows warehousing prices well above um, you know, pre-pandemic levels, but down quite a lot from their high. And you know, in certain parts of the country, it's still very difficult to find warehousing space. Prices are still high, but the fact that this has changed as much as it has from earlier in the year, we had that warehousing prices there, you know, around 90, down, it's down to 76, shows that there's not a lot of demand for you know, new, uh, you know, p- putting products into warehouses that aren't into, into warehouses al- already. So it seems like most of the companies are recognizing that they have too much in, in, in inventory. They're making changes to you know, correct, um, you know, going forward. So I think that has, you know, really big implications for the transportation market where those inventories need to be right-sized, you know, before you're going to see, you know, a strength again in the transportation market. Um, I'll show some graphs a little bit later on that show the the truckload market, um, you know, loosening. So that's uh, really sort of topic number one. Topic number two is the prices of some cuts of meat are actually declining. Um, It's been a while since I've talked about any um, you know deflation aside from maybe energy on this show, which um, you know, energy prices have been down for a number of weeks, but um, the the retail meat prices for some of the higher cuts of of beef starting to come down. What this chart shows is live cattle. Now that's what the meat processors are buying and uh, processing into the packaged meat. But this is kind of interesting too, where you go back before the pandemic um, at a fairly high level, pandemic hits, demand falls off a cliff. A big reason for that was that the meat processors did not have the personnel at their facilities to process the meat. So um, those small ranchers that had the cattle to sell really didn't do well in the beginning of the pandemic. And these prices have gradually improved. You sort of go back to the left side of that chart you know, that's a lot of what the Biden administration was relying on when they were talking about how the meat industry was too concentrated. They pointed to retail prices being too high, and they pr- pointed to um, the amount that the live cattle, um, you know, ranchers were getting for their live cattle was, was too low. Margins for, you know, the, the middleman, which is the meat processors, there's four companies that dominate the meat processing industry. Their margins were were really expanding. The sort of point counterpoint was that's because 
there's only four of them. It's a very concentrated industry. There's maybe collusion happening. The, the, the counterpoint was those are just market forces. Consumers were willing to, to buy uh, expensive meat. They had a little bit of discretionary income. The prices for the cattle were, were low because there was more cattle available than these meat processors were able to process. And now those market forces um, you know, seem to be pointing in the direction of uh, the uh, meat processors having you know, thinner margins. We did see that with Tyson in the last quarter. I thought it was really an illuminating quarter uh, that Tyson just reported. It was um, you know, when they reported their shares were down about 8%. And what surprised the market there was that um, you know, consumers were, were trading down in terms of uh, you know, the quality of the meat. They saw you know, chicken volume was up, you know, pork and beef were down. And what we're seeing sort of in some of the latest uh, you know, information that's coming out of the CPG industry is it's not just that beef volume is down overall, it's that within the beef category, the more expensive cuts like the steaks, ribeye, um, you know, tenderloin, those things, um, the volume is down there, which is actually dragging down prices for those higher cuts of beef. Those uh, you know, higher cuts of beef down about 10% in the past four weeks, but some of the cheaper cuts like the, the ground beef, that's up 7% during the same period. So you're seeing um, consumers trade down to lower cuts. That that makes a lot of sense here. Um, interesting that Tyson's average price for for beef in the last quarter down, um, you know, one point two percent, and that's with volume, um, you know, also, uh, you know, declining. So so clearly, consumers, um, you know, had have changed are changing their behavior in terms of what they're willing to buy. That you know, some of the big um, you know meat companies have talked about how the private label. Brands are gaining share from the the, the national brands there. They're in meat, um, and I think a lot of the, the bottlenecks are starting to become alleviated. I guess the meat processors are having a little bit easier time recruiting, retaining workers as they've increased uh, the pay, and maybe the workers are a little bit less scared of COVID. And and also the meat processors have done a lot of uh, maybe creative things to uh, you know get workers into. The facilities, things like arranging rides for them, things like arranging, you know, childcare on site. Um, you know, talk, they talked a lot about those things during the pandemic, but maybe the biggest uh, thing is just consumers had that cushion from, uh, you know, stimulus payments and not, you know, traveling and those things, and, and, and some of that cushion is is, is going away. So, um, prices are actually down for um, some some cuts of meat, at least. Uh, the next topic here is consumers are actually starting to turn away a little bit from grocery delivery. And they seem to be doing that because they don't want to pay the fees associated with, um, you know, with the delivery. This is sort of just one of a m- many, you know, pandemic behaviors and trends that seems to be reversing itself. There was a, a good, um, you know, survey that I saw that Winsight Grocery Business um, was describing. It's actually a pretty good, uh, you know, newsletter and publication uh, for uh, you know food products. They they cited consumers. You know, really sort of hate these these grocery delivery fees. They said sixty two percent of the of the the customers surveyed that delivery fees were the seasons the reason they they don't use the delivery services, and about forty percent uh, surveyed that they'd rather use the next day delivery versus same day. Uh, consumers are willing to pay about ten dollars on a one hundred dollar order. It's about seventy percent would accept it the, the same day if if that was the case. And so, consumers seem to like the convenience of grocery, not completely willing to, to pay for it. Another uh, uh, you know, item from that uh, survey shows a lot of people just really like to you know, look at their the produce, particularly the older uh, shoppers. And um, you know, some of them are, are starting to you know, pursue price over 
convenience. So that's just kind of another trend that, you know, I think maybe could potentially help CPG because I do think a lot of things that, um, you know, go into CPG that are included in that category tend to be, you know, impulse purchases. When you think of like the snacks, like the things that Mondelez makes, uh, a lot of those things tend to be, you know, purchased pretty impulsively. Uh, The next uh, topic here is the Surface Transportation Board seeks assurance on rail's ability to handle the upcoming harvest. And I have a sonar chart in uh, on this. And this is what the Surface Transportation Board, this is the independent organization that regulates the railroads. This is what they're concerned about. So you look at the right part of that chart. So this is a seasonality chart. 2022 is in white. 2021 is in green. 2020 is in blue. You have this big surge towards the end of the year. And uh, right now, the Grain carloads in the U.S. is about, this is a weekly number, about 21,000. That's likely to climb, like it has the past couple of years, between 25,000 and 20, let's say 28,000. Surface Transportation Board, not convinced the railroads are going to be able to meet those expectations. They sent a letter to all Class 1 rails asking how the rails can provide um, you know, information on how they expect to meet that demand. They also helped organize the National Grain Car Council with representatives from the Class 1 rails, short lines, rail car providers, and a lot of those rail cars are leased, and grain shippers. They're all going to meet this week. And um, this comes at a time when the railroads are really under a lot of pressure to, you know, for all the service failures, the Surface Transportation Board had to issue an emergency order against the Union Pacific. Um, this is the first time the, the, the STB has done this in about 10 years, and that was to get animal feed to uh, the chicken uh, plants, um, basically the, the shipper there was saying, well, you know, we're going to have to euthanize millions of chickens if they didn't get the, the, the feed. So, um, you know, the, the railroad's coming under more fire for, um, you know, service issues. It seems to be an issue that is getting more attention uh, throughout, um, you know, the country and, and sort of in the public conscious as well. You've seen a lot of this from, from politicians where it seemed like the politicians that used to care about rail service were the, from the coal states or from the big, you know, agriculture states. And now it seems like it's a, a wide, you know, coalition that's that's bipartisan, that's very concerned about rail, you know, service issues. And the Surface Transportation Board, um, you know, whether you like the or, or dislike the current iteration seems to be, you know, on what side of the shipper-carrier divide that you're on. Clearly, this iteration, um, you know, is, is really believes that the railroads have maybe cut to the, into the bone when they... Uh, you know, reduce the workforces as much as they have and seem to claim the precision scheduled railroading sort of rightly or wrongly for a lot of these service issues. And, um, you know, do get the impression that the Surface Transportation Board is going to do more to regulate the railroads in terms of service and price than they have uh, so far, which so far it's been a lot of, um, you know, listening to, to shippers, you know, complain at hearings and uh, demand uh, more, um, data. There's always now a lot more rail service data available on Surface Transportation Board website. Actually, some of it's pretty illuminating in terms of you know delayed days. Uh, but you, you feel like the the um, Surface Transportation Board is going to go further uh, than that. So that's something that we're we're watching that has a big impact on uh, the uh, CPG supply chains, at least in food. And I'll go through a couple more transportation topics, but also wanted to take a moment to again thank RJW Logistics Group for sponsoring this show. Are you assessing the advantages of prepaid versus collect freight management for delivery into retail? RJW's retail consolidation program consistently achieves over 98% on time and in full to ensure a stronger shelf presence 
increased in stocks, retail, retailer compliance, and overall retail supply chain improvement. Visit rjw.com and speak with a retail logistics expert about the advantages of RJW's program to make the best of your decision. So we're going to learn more about that um, you know, next week when we have RJW on the uh, show. I believe that's the topic that they wanted to talk about was the prepaid versus collect freight management um, for delivery into retail. Um, not a ex- uh, topic that I'm an expert in, so I'm happy to, to, to learn something and, and when we visit with them. Um, I have a chart in here that I think is, is really important. I did show it last week, but the, on the national freight um, you know, spot rates and you know, compare that to contract rates. And this was the data that uh, Craig Fuller, our uh, CEO and founder, was talking about on Bloomberg the other day. I think it was Friday that he talked about this and not going to go over all that he said, but this is, is really kind of the striking chart that I think CPG shippers are going to want to you know, pay close attention to where you see the spot rates in white, how much those have just completely fallen off a cliff. You normally, normal conditions are, are kind of on the left where the spot rates are higher than the contract rates. Um, and if you can't get something covered in the contract rates, it sort of falls to the, to the spot rate. Unusual for the spot rates to be this far below contract rates in green and, and be this far below them for this for this long. But you do see in green, recently, pretty significant, maybe very significant you know, decline in contract rates. Um, you know, beginning of June, they're about three dollars. They're down about a quarter. Um, you know, twenty five cents from that to two seventy six. Seemed to that that downward slope has um, intensified of late. Um, a lot of that spread has to do with the fact that most contracts roll over in the beginning part of the year, so it expect. Um, those lines to maybe cross again in the beginning of next year. I think they are going to get closer uh, as the year uh, progresses, but um, you know, you'll really see a big difference next year when shippers look to renegotiate you know, those contracts downward um, and, and are going to use the spot rates, assuming the spot rates are still low, you know, use that as a guide for what rates um, is the market really um, you know, going to bear um, when it comes to when it comes to contract rates. Still, you know, think there's a little bit of trepidation on the part of you know some of these big shippers that they don't want to be too aggressive too soon because they want to have that capacity available. I mean, it is a risky um, you know proposition to be too aggressive on rates um, because of the you know it could go you know the other way given how volatile the the, the market has has been of, of lately. Um, most uh, Shippers that have tried to predict what's happening next in the freight market have, have kind of been burned here. Um, you know, next topic here is uh, the intermodal savings rate has uh, declined, uh, you know, rather dramatically. I have a chart on this, um, which shows so sh- showing the, the intermodal savings rate. So what that means is taking the the truckload um, rate, including fuel, and taking the difference between that and the intermodal contract rate, including fuel. So intermodal has that uh, fuel uh, advantage, where it's about half the fuel surcharge, so including fuel. And we're, we're just looking at origin destination pairs with the same uh, three-digit zip code. And so you'd have a very comparable route there. In a lot of cases, it's the same you know, shipper that's moving both uh, you know, dry van and intermodal in the same origin destination pairs, where the difference is you know, how time-sensitive are these are these products? How much is there in, in, in inventory? But so basically, it's it's declined. Uh, the, the overall uh, savings rate associated with intermodal 
contracts is now about 12% based on data that, that we're seeing. And what's maybe even more interesting is that white line, which uh, just shows those lanes that are longer than 1,200 miles. And so 1,200 miles, you know, the, the, the lanes are longer than that. That would be your LA to Chicago, uh, your LA to Dallas, your LA to Atlanta. So those, um, those, those lanes that really typically are not very competitive with truckload, those are getting more competitive with truckload. Where, uh, in the you know, middle of last year, it was 25 to 30% uh, savings. Now we're showing it's about 17% savings. And then when you look at just the local East market, in a lot of cases, it, you, uh, shippers can save money by using the highway rather than intermodal. One of the stats that's really you know, uh, st- stood out to me from the last earnings season was Hub Group, the domestic intermodal company, which actually just announced an acquisition this morning. They said in the second quarter that their local east volume, intermodal volume, was down 14% and that it was more competitive with the spot rates on the highway. And so that's those are, would be lanes like Chicago to Atlanta, maybe Chicago to the New York area, let's call it Elizabeth, New Jersey, that's anywhere from, uh, you know, that's, that's about 700 miles and 900 miles, respectively. Those lanes, very competitive with truckload. The, the, the spot rates have fallen everywhere. They've been sort of particularly weak in some of those lanes that can get them into a market that's very, um, you know, robust. So a, a lot of uh, intermodal, um, you know, volume has been lost there. Of course, service plays a big role there, too. The service has not been, you know, great, although I think it's probably better than it was a year ago. Um which was maybe the the, the nadir of, of rail service. So, um, you know, still a, a lot of um, you know things that shippers have to be concerned of, about if they're using rail uh, intermodal. You know, the next topic here is the union leaders uh, dissatisfied with the uh, presidential emergency board recommendations. So this was uh, finally did get a, a response from the union leaders after the presidential emergency board issued regulations. So if you haven't been following this. There's a possibility of a major rail strike on September 16th, which is uh, approaching pretty quickly. That could impact 145,000 workers, would shut down the whole rail industry. I think it's unlikely that if there is a strike, that um, Congress would not order them back to work very quickly. Um, I think the likelihood is that they, they would get ordered back to work very quickly. And you know, using the recommendations of this Presidential Emergency Board, which just posted 145-page report last week, and really, they struck a balance between what the unions wanted, which was a 31% raise over five years, and what the railroads uh, proposed, which was a 17%. They said, okay, let's put the difference at 22%. And the workers would get an extra day off, and the benefits would maybe be a little bit in favor of the carriers. On balance, um, it would be the largest wage increase in 47 years. Of course, inflation is the highest it's been in, in 40, so that seems uh, reasonable. And this is probably the only, t- only time I can remember that the railroads have had trouble recruiting and retaining workers. Um, you know, past after past volume downturns, they've had no problem, you know, getting those workers back to work because they you know pay more than what they were doing in the interim. That hasn't happened this year. I think the morale, you know, being at a low level. Um, following the uh, you know cost cutting and precision scheduled railroading has really had a big impact on railroads' ability to recruit and retain workers. Um, workers also complaining about you know less time at home, more time in places that are pretty remote. Um, you know, in some cases they've complained about having to 
pay their own travel and, 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 and things like that. So uh, union leaders pretty dissatisfied, and that's sort of that may have just been posturing as they continue to negotiate here uh, and drag this out to the eleventh hour. Uh, but it could also mean that the unions are planning to to strike, and Congress is going to have to order them you know, back to to work, and maybe that could be disruptive for a period of time in September. I think most uh, people hope that's not true, and that they can come to some you know resolution uh, would uh, not help uh, supply chains, which um, a lot of CPG companies still are struggling with. I mean, for all that I talk about uh, higher inventory levels, that's not true for every. Uh, ingredients and there's there's plenty of you know ingredients that can sort of create you know choke points we've heard that from a lot of the snacking companies like you know Mondelez or even you know, a lot of the, the cereal companies General Mills talking about how um, you know at times they have been short on a certain you know in, ingredient have to run their um, you know working capital a little bit higher to have a little bit of, of extra stock and in, in, in certain of those in, in ingredients so uh, that's something to be um, you know watchful of. I'll keep you updated on FreightWaves.com. Uh, for anyone who's not subscribed to the newsletter, uh, go to FreightWaves.com forward slash the stockout and sign up for my uh, newsletter right there under newsletters. First, the first one. Uh, feel free also to sign up for all the others. I think they're all really good. And uh, check back with uh, FreightWaves.com uh, daily and every morning at uh, eight o'clock uh, Central Time for FreightWaves Now. So with that, hope everyone has a great day.